This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Jews just celebrated the High Holy Days, ending with Yom Kippur. And this seemed like a powerful time to focus on a sobering fact. Holocaust survivors in the United States often live in poverty. In fact, they're much more likely to struggle financially than seniors overall. So a Denver couple started a nonprofit that sends emergency funds to survivors. It's called Kavod. That's Hebrew for honor and respect, and it has helped nearly a thousand people. Founders John Pragelman and Amy Israel Pragelman are here. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you very much. So, John, you're a photographer, and this grew out of your work doing portraits of Holocaust survivors. What did you see, maybe in their homes, that opened your eyes to this need? Well, in the beginning, um, when I was taking pictures of survivors, we would often go into their homes um, because a lot of them cannot get out. And I was in Orlando in March of 2015 taking photos of a 94-year-old survivor. And is it often the case with the female survivors? They want to feed me after we take the pictures. And when we went into her kitchen, she opened her refrigerator, and I was shocked to see there was really nothing there besides some water, some milk, and cheese. And I asked her, you know, where is the rest of your food that for the rest of the week, she said, well, I had an emergency that I didn't expect this week. My air conditioner broke, and I had to spend my grocery money to fix the air conditioner, so I'm just doing without for the rest of the month. And you found this, in fact, to be quite common among Holocaust survivors. So the poverty rate for seniors overall is somewhere around 10%. For survivors, one estimate put that rate at three times as high. Amy, you actually wrote a thesis on this. What are some of the factors behind why the rate is so much higher among Holocaust survivors? Um, there are many factors, one being many don't have families. Uh, they are here alone and or they have lost their spouses or other parts of their family. They struggle with their health at a great, you know, at a at higher levels uh, due to the traumas they experienced during those years. Right. Some of those health conditions are related to their time in the camps. Exactly. Exactly. Emotionally, physically, et cetera. And at this stage in their life, their short-term memory has, has gotten less and their long-term memory has returned. And so it's all very prevalent in their minds. Interesting. And so as a lot of people deal with uh, day-to-day needs, they may be fine. And then an emergency comes up, um, whether it is a health emergency or a home emergency or something that pushes them out of this, out of the, um, out of their comfort zone and their budget is blown based on that. So there are lots of other issues around their just being a senior Um, that are enhanced because of their survivors. Now, what about the safety net? In other words, I think of that being there for a lot of seniors. That's not necessarily the case. Right. So the safety net being family, um, they don't have. The financial safety net, they don't have. And they're living longer. So they're in their 90s and their 80s, and they didn't save for these rainy days, or they didn't even have the opportunity to do so. I know that a number of them 
uh, are Russian and came over maybe during the Soviet era. And so they didn't necessarily have the earning years here either as the part of the safety net. Sure. So, Mm -hmm. right, exactly. So they don't have the Social Security or the the Medicaid, et cetera, because of those um, coming to the U.S. in the later years. Do you think that it is harder for them to ask for help? Without question. And that's another thing. Um, They're very proud. They don't want to be put on lists of anything. They don't want to be seen, acknowledged, or, you know, they have a lot of trauma around that issue of being recognized and and asking for help. So that's a big deal. So give me some examples of the needs that Kavod has met. These are often uh, emergency expenses. Describe some of them for me, John. Well, as I mentioned, um, things like air conditioning's breaking, cars breaking down, even pets needing emergency care. And recently, um, we've had more and more cases where the, they need dental, extreme dental repairs because of the malnutrition they had in the camps. Um, a lot of them now have extra medicine that they didn't expect to have. And you remember that the, most of them are on a monthly budget and do receive aid monthly. But when things come up they don't expect, there's no backup. So what is the need usually? How much money are you sending them in this emergency situation? I mean, on average, it could be $300 to $600 that could potentially last anywhere between three and six months. Um, For example, like John said, someone has an emergency need that comes up with their health and they have to purchase medication that is new and it may be a short-term fix. So that that could offset their co-pays for that period of time. I know that some of your recipients have in the past been hit by hurricanes mm-hmm. uh, in Florida, in Texas. Of course, this brings to mind Hurricane Florence. Yeah. So natural disaster has played a role in yes. these economic needs as well. Definitely. We definitely participated in supporting survivors in Texas and Florida and still do, actually. I have to say I was so surprised to learn this, that the poverty rate might be higher among Holocaust survivors. One, do you think this is something the general population knows? And two, do you think it's something the Jewish population in and of itself knows? Well, we have done extensive research on this before we started Kavod. And the 30 to 35 percent number is very well documented and has remained constant even from the past to now. Um it, do do you think it's a known fact among many? No, we are finding in the overall community and specifically in the Jewish community, we speak a lot to um, audiences across the United States about this issue, and many are surprised to find out that they are living in poverty at all, and especially the the high percentage. You've been around for just a few years, have given out about $150,000 in aid. Uh, All donations go to survivors. And I I wonder what this experience and tackling it as husband and wife has taught you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we met um, at our relationship evolved as the organization evolved. And um, so it's been a really interesting part of our relationship as a couple and as 
co-founders. It's it's a great way to get to know somebody. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, but it's been great. It's it's a great partnership, and we bring different strengths to the table, which is I think how we were able to make this work. I want to circle back just briefly before we go to your photography work, John. Portraits of Holocaust survivors. Why do you do it? Well, it all started because a friend of mine at the Illinois Holocaust Museum asked me to come there and take some photos of survivors. He knew that I'd been a professional photographer in my 20s, so he asked me to come do that. And I spent three days there taking photos of 60 survivors and talking with them and became astounded at the amazing, positive, and happy people that they were despite their circumstances. And he encouraged me to continue to do that because it had a cathartic effect on the survivors to have their pictures taken and to know that they will not be forgotten. Their biggest fear is that they and their stories will be forgotten. And you have, in the end, done this around the globe and photographed dozens of survivors. 679 survivors so far um, in 33 cities in the United States. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. John Pregelman and Amy Israel Pregelman of Denver run Kavod, which provides emergency financial assistance to Holocaust survivors. Kavod means honor and respect in Hebrew. The nonprofit has helped nearly a thousand people. While issues like the economy, immigration, gender equality, and even the impact of President Trump himself remain top issues in the midterm election, Marijuana, of all things, is also playing a role like never before. That's thanks in part to what has happened here in Colorado. Correspondent Matt Laszlo is tracking this issue in Washington, D.C. Hi, Matt. Hey, great to be back on your air. How is marijuana playing differently this election cycle? Well, it's interesting. Lawmakers seem to be not running away from it like they did in the past. Even this week... uh, Two Oregon Democrats were seen drinking CBD beer. Uh, There was an Instagram of it. And you're in Colorado where it's totally legal. Remember, in other states, you can still face a $1,000 fine and jail time for even consuming CBD. And now lawmakers are having it on their Instagram feed. Um, But we're even seeing this with Republicans. Um, We're seeing more bills in Congress with more uh, co-sponsors than ever before. And a lot of them from the Republican side of the aisle. Um, And this is even happening in states that don't even have legal recreational marijuana uh, like they do in Colorado. And I talked to one Florida congressman, Matt Gates, and he's a darling of the Tea Party right. There's something about the sound of your own gallows being built that tends to focus the mind. And as we're potentially heading into the minority, it might be good for our members in swing districts to show an embrace of science. So that's the congressman from Florida. Remember, that's a state where recreational marijuana isn't even legal. They have a very limited medicinal marijuana program, and yet he's advocating and pushing Speaker Ryan, hey, bring these bills up for votes. We want to vote on this stuff, uh, which is totally a sea change. And what do you think is behind it? I mean, it's it's such a sea change from I didn't inhale, you know. Right. And uh, I guess the answer to that is two words. Jeff Sessions. He really changed the game. And remember, he's uh, this prohibitionist. He hates marijuana. He said that good people don't smoke pot. Um 
But when he repealed that thing called the Cole Memo, which was under the Obama administration, they directed prosecutors, federal prosecutors across the nation to not prosecute marijuana, uh, to not prioritize it uh, for low-level marijuana possession. Jeff Sessions repealed that memo, and it really uh, enlivened this Congress, and it really got Republicans out of the woodwork, namely uh, Colorado Senator Cory Gardner. And he was pivotal. Um, He got a group of senators together after that. And um, he got Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, uh, to sit down, hammer out an agreement. And she really credits Gardner with getting the president on board. So Cory and I left the meeting, kept working on it, hammered out a bill. And Cory went out, talked to a lot of Republicans about it. And Donald Trump said, sounded like a good idea to him. So there you go. Uh, Progressive Elizabeth Warren teaming up with Republican Colorado Senator Cory Gardner on a bill that would codify what the president said, that each state should be able to decide their own marijuana policy. In Colorado, that's recreational. Over in Oklahoma, they just voted for medicinal marijuana. And some states won't want anything legalized at all. Uh, And their bill would uh, pave the way for that. And hey, they got President Trump to sign on, even over the uh, protests of his attorney general, Mr. Sessions. I want to say that uh, Cory Gardner, not up for re-election this midterm in Colorado. Uh, His seat's not up till 2020. So 31 states and the District of Columbia, where you are, have legalized marijuana in some form, recreational marijuana legal in nine states. How many states are considering legalization in some form during this election? So, like I mentioned, Oklahoma voters already passed it in their primary earlier this summer. Um, We're going to see it on the ballot for recreational in Michigan and North Dakota, and then medicinal in Utah and Missouri. Uh, But then it's also going to be interesting to watch next year, because two legislatures uh, are expected to follow Vermont's lead and actually vote on it themselves. And remember, Vermont's the first state in the nation where the legislature, um, as opposed to the voters with a ballot initiative, actually uh, voted to legalize marijuana. And the two to watch are New Jersey and Virginia. Jersey and Virginia. What has been happening specifically with marijuana issues at the U.S. Capitol? Say more about that, Matt. Not much. Um, The funny thing is I've asked Mitch McConnell about this, the Senate leader, and he says, while he supports hemp legislation to legalize hemp, um, he still very much opposes marijuana. So we've seen him bring no amendments to the floor, even though there's bipartisan amendments. Remember, Senator Gardner is pushing him to bring his bill up for a vote. Um, but party leaders have been stripping out uh, bipartisan agreements. There was one bipartisan agreement to allow VA doctors to um, consult with veterans about marijuana as opposed to using opioids. And remember, the backdrop of all of this is we have a raging opioid ep- epidemic where we're losing more lives annually than were lost in the entire Vietnam War. Um, so a big part of this does uh, is an attempt to address the opioid crisis. Um, But we did see a historic first in the House Judiciary Committee. They voted on a bill um, and it unanimously passed uh, to allow more research into marijuana at the federal level. Uh, This is kind of an oddity. But right now, because of the federal prohibition on weed, only the University of Mississippi is allowed to grow marijuana. And their marijuana is nothing like you would find in a store in Colorado. It's this very, what do they say on the streets? Schwag. It's this (laughs) dry... uh, terrible stuff that no one would even smoke. So that's what you have to test if you're testing marijuana with a federal grant. Well, 
that's not what people in Colorado are consuming. So they passed a bill that would force Jeff Sessions uh, to approve at least two new grow sites, which could go to the University of Denver or anywhere else, um, and up to 25 new grow sites. And again, the anti-marijuana chair of the Judiciary Committee, Bob Goodlatte of Virginia, ushered that bill through. And Democratic uh, Congressman Jared Polis of Colorado says that that shows that pressure is building from states like Colorado and elsewhere. I think what you see is people that have traditionally stood in the way of progress in marijuana issues are finally yielding to the intense pressure from rank-and-file members on the Democratic and Republican side, uh, which really stems from uh, the grassroots uh, at the state level, saying it's about time for Congress to act. And that pressure has been growing, and that's in part because of the confluence of these Tea Party Republicans who have these intense libertarian streaks. So you have someone like Senator Rand Paul teaming up with, say, Elizabeth Warren or uh, Cory Booker teaming up with Senator Gardner. These are broad coalitions and party leaders are definitely feeling that pressure. And I think you've really hinted at this. Part of the equation here is looking at issues beyond marijuana. So opioids, veteran issues related to PTSD, that, that is also in the, in, the, in the soup here. Exactly. And then also more broadly, it's criminal justice reform. We have the Black Lives Matter uh, movement really picking up steam, and we're still seeing a lot of arrests of African-Americans, even in states where, I mean, take New York City. Uh, the mayor there has directed the police department not to arrest African-Americans or not to arrest people for marijuana. And yet the police department is still incarcerating black and brown people uh, at higher rates than their white neighbors for marijuana. So between that, the opioid crisis, and then also specifically with veterans uh, suffering from PTSD. For Rolling Stone, I interviewed um, a federal worker who had both of his legs blown off in Afghanistan, and he risks losing his job for the federal government Mm -hmm. for smoking marijuana four to five times a week uh, so that he doesn't have to take opioids. He told me uh, that he would rather uh, have his legs blown up again in Afghanistan than go through opioid withdrawal. And he said he risked getting fired from his job for smoking weed, but he's willing to take that risk. Uh, So these are vital issues for a lot of our fellow Americans. Thanks for being with us, Matt. My pleasure. Correspondent Matt Laszlo joining us from Washington, D.C. to talk about marijuana and the midterms. The headline is eye-opening. Coloradans generate 9.6 pounds of trash per person per day, and most of it goes into a landfill. Only about two pounds per person is recycled. In fact, Colorado's recycling rate is well below the national average, surprising for a state that prides itself on being green. So what gives? Well, it's a topic the Colorado Sun is exploring The Sun officially launched this month by former employees of the Denver Post. Editor Larry Rickman joins me, along with reporter Jennifer Brown, who looked into the state's recycling habits. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Jennifer, let's start with that statistic. I read it and thought, there's no way I generate 10 pounds of trash a day. I mean, clearly it's an average. But what does it tell us? What's behind it? Well, it is a shocking number. And one thing I learned was that Colorado, despite its green reputation, is not doing very well at this. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, Myself and a few other reporters at the Colorado Sun spent part of the summer visiting landfills and recycling centers. 
And what we learned was a few things about Colorado's recycling habits. And one is that we're a very rural state, and there are lots of places in Colorado where recycling is not even an option. Um, Two, we have no laws here that mandate recycling. So there are other states like Oregon, for example, where it is illegal to throw recyclable goods in a landfill. So there's a lot of issues, you know, going on. And another one is that the state regulators say that our recycling rate might be a little bit off. We might be doing a little bit better, but there's so much construction materials, demolition in the landfills in Colorado that by weight, the percentage of goods that are recycled um, is kind of off balance when you consider how many heavy things, I guess, are stuffed in our landfills. Interesting. And that must be related to the the housing boom here mm-hmm. and to the fact that we've actually covered uh, here on CPR News how many more people are redoing their homes because they can't afford to buy a new home. So right. I wonder if it's a dimension of that. Yes, I think that is definitely part of Colorado's issue. And for example, one of the landfills um, that I learned about was in Pitkin County in Aspen. And I learned that an average house in Aspen is torn down and rebuilt every 20 to 25 years, which um, I'm not sure what the national average is, but it's way more years than 20 years. So their landfill in Pitkin County is about to have to shut down or buy new land or do something because it is full of demo and construction materials. Oh, okay. And I have to think that's feeding the 9.6 pounds of trash per person per day. That has to be counted in this average. I think all of these things are. Yeah. Um, So the fact that the state has a lot of rural uh, areas is part of this. And it's it's stunning to me that there are just parts of the state where recycling is not an option, even for hire. In other words, it's not municipally offered. It's not privately offered. Right. I mean, even in metro area counties, Larimer County has places, you know, counties up north where if you live in the city, yeah, you can get recycling. If you live out in the county, your your only option is to sort that for yourself and drive it to, you know, the recycling bins at the landfill or somewhere else that you can take it. And another point to that is, for example, um, apartment buildings in Denver don't have recycle bins, and that's not a law here as it is in in some other cities. And so looking back at the last five years, the state health department says Colorado is actually doing less and less recycling each year. I mentioned earlier that the state's well behind the national average. So 19 percent of trash gets recycled here compared to about 34 percent nationally. It's a big gap. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to note that you spent your summer visiting landfills. So when people ask you, what did you do this summer? That's your answer. What's what stood out from visiting landfills? And does Colorado have an, enough? Yeah, visiting landfills ended up being fascinating, despite, you know, every time I would come home with a batch of flies in my car, which was lovely. not lovely, but um, I learned so much. And some of these places are so organized. Um, the largest landfill in Colorado, called Dad's for short, it's the Denver Arapaho landfill out in Aurora, it takes the most um, waste in per day. And it is run, you know, 
so efficiently there. Everything is organized. Um, there's a section for tires. There's a composting area. They they collect the methane that comes off of decomposing garbage and they sell it back to the Excel grid to power homes. Um, but still, what really struck me as all of these people who work in the landfill and the, the engineer there are such conservationists. You know, they um, want Colorado to do better in terms of what they throw away and how. And, and even the engineer there, um, well, he doesn't use trash service himself, even though he could. Part of the reason is that he finds it annoying how many trash trucks are allowed to come in and out of neighborhoods. And trash guys even have jokes among themselves that Coloradans think it's their God-given right to choose their, their trash man. Huh. And so he collects his trash, sorts it, um, every two weeks brings his bags and bins out to the landfill. And before he starts working as the engineer of the landfill, he disposes of all these things in the proper way. I wonder what role compost plays in this picture. What I learned about compost is that it takes a lot more people to be doing it to oh. make it worthwhile. Um, for example, if you're going to have a compost truck pick up your compost, think of the energy being used to pick it up if there's only three people in the neighborhood that are actually using it. Is there enough landfill space then in Colorado? Yes. Um, unlike other states where they are down to three landfills or zero landfills and they ship their garbage out, Colorado does not have that problem. Um the problem Colorado has is land is a lot cheaper um, than recycling. So it is way cheaper to for people to dump in a landfill than it is to recycle those goods. That, in a way, becomes the incentive to not recycling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Larry Rickman, Jennifer's article on how much or how little people in Colorado recycle is one of several the Colorado Sun has tackled this week. You also write about efforts to recycle disposable coffee cups, uh, more on the challenges of recycling in rural areas, even how robots are enhancing the process. How does this fit into the, the mission of this new Colorado Sun? You know, it's exactly the kind of journalism that we set out to do with the Colorado Sun. You know, these these things, uh, these kinds of deep, meaningful stories can take uh, weeks, sometimes months to do. They can be expensive. They involve travel to various parts of the state. And uh, we found, have found, that those kinds of stories are the ones that get left by the wayside sometimes when newsrooms get cut and uh, there's pressure on to produce uh, stories every day. So at the Colorado Sun, uh, we are just two weeks old, not, not even two weeks yet, and uh, we are focusing on exactly that, stories that bring meaning uh, to people in Colorado. You launched it as a digital-only news outlet. I don't want to call it a newspaper because that label seems to be something of a misnomer these days. Uh, it is launched in large part by former staff of the Denver Post. You are not, though, trying to be the anti-Post. No, not at all. And we're not trying to be a mini-Denver Post either. I mean, f- frankly, we're rooting for our former colleagues uh, at the Denver Post. They're doing some great work. From our perspective, Colorado needs the Denver Post, but the Denver Post needs a new owner. And we weren't uh, going to hold our breath and wait for a new owner to uh, come up on a white horse and and save the day. So we decided to create the sun. We're we're doing things differently. We're not covering the Broncos. We're not covering the Rockies, even though we're rooting for them. Uh, We're not the place to come for the latest uh, stabbing or shooting downtown or the latest uh, garbage fire in Commerce City. 
we are the place to come for watchdog, investigative, explanatory, narrative journalism. And that's uh, that's what we're proud to do. Now, when I go to the Colorado Sun's website, I do not encounter a paywall. I see a discreet box at the top that says, if you like this, you might consider becoming a member. Uh, I have described this in the public media setting as putting the milk out there for free and then asking people to pay for the cow. I guess that's what you're doing, too, at the Colorado Sun. Well, at least for now. And and there's one other thing that you're not going to see at the Colorado Sun, which is traditional advertising. You're not going to see the pop-up ads, the autoplay videos, the takeover ads that drive us all crazy on traditional news sites. And yet I think there might be some in the industry who think you're crazy for trying that. No ads and no paywall. Yes. Well, and, and we get that. The, the advertising piece uh, from our perspective is that why would we alienate the very people that we need to be successful, meaning readers? We don't want to get in the way of readers trying to, to read our, our excellent journalism. In terms of a paywall, you know, frankly, uh, you're, you're right. It's not, uh, not, there's no way to run a business to give away your, your milk for free. <laughs> but hey, know, we do it. Yeah. No, under, understood. And frankly, we're taking great inspiration from you guys and from, from, uh, from Rocky Mountain PBS as well. Frankly, the, our message is if you like what you see, if you value deep journalism and you care about Colorado, we think uh, we're a, a great option for, for people to come and read our journalism. I will say, that I've reached out to uh, to our readers and asked about a business plan. And most of our readers have said, you know what, we'd be happy to pay you if you change your mind down the road. You'll see if they put their money where their eyes are, I guess. Thanks for being with us. I hope the flies are out of the car, Jennifer. Yes, I'll clear it out now. Thank you. you. Okay. Thank yeah. you so much, Ryan. Larry Rickman, editor of The Colorado Sun, and Jennifer Brown, government and human services writer there. There are no men in the new play Men on Boats. Only women appear in the show based on explorer John Wesley Powell's 1869 expedition along the Colorado River. Boulder Theatre Company The Catamounts presents the regional premiere of Men on Boats tomorrow night. Amanda Berg-Wilson directs it. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's nice to be here. No, it was not your call to have an all-female cast. That came from the playwright Jacqueline Backus. Uh, She has a casting note that while the actual people represented in the play were historically cisgender male, the cast should be, quote, made up entirely of people who are not. Why do you think the playwright made that decision? Well, Jacqueline grew up in Arizona and she knew the story of John Wesley Powell's expedition. And when it came time to write the play, she just thought, I want to play one of these explorers, you know. And then it made her think, why can't I? And why do these characters have to be played just because they're historical people by the historical bodies that that would have, you know, been on the expedition? And then I got her thinking about the fact that, you know, uh, women and uh, non-binary folks aren't necessarily entitled to these kind of epic historic adventures as part of, you know, our traditional storytelling. And so she decided to flip it on its head. Does it feel like more than uh, a small change or even a gimmick 
in the show. What does it add in terms of dimension, do you think? Well, you know, it's really interesting that you should say that because I actually think sort of the brilliance of the piece is that after a while, we sort of forget that the characters um, are being played by non-cisgendered white men because she ultimately just tells the tale in this very rollicking, comic, fun way. But then every once in a while... You just, your brain is turned back to that fact. And it has this sort of subtle commentary throughout, which is why why aren't these, you know, racially diverse women entitled to these kind of epic historical storytelling? These thoroughly American, thoroughly Western narratives. Yes. So the play, indeed, otherwise adheres pretty closely to John Wesley Powell's published journal, The Exploration of the Colorado River and Its Canyons. Uh, Powell, an explorer and geologist, organized the expedition for the federal government, and he takes a group of men down the river to create the first official map of this area. Uh, And uh, the original expedition party included 10 men and four boats, I think, but only five men plus Powell and three boats returned. Yes. So what are some of the biggest challenges the crew encounters on the Colorado River? Well, the first person to depart the expedition is a man named Goodman, and he's a British kind of uh, travel, you know, explorer, a tourist explorer. And he, you know, John Wesley Powell isn't super specific about it in the journals, but our piece basically just says, after a while, it became not that fun. <laughs> so <laughs> The threat count on the sheets wasn't quite high enough, perhaps, for him. Exactly. Uh-huh. But the, um, the last three uh, men to depart the journey um, were Dunn and uh, O.G. and Seneca Howland. And they left the expedition um, because they didn't believe that they were going to make it. And they thought that the safest choice was to leave the river and try to find a Mormon settlement. Ironically, they then uh, reached the end of the Grand Canyon two days later. And those three members of the expedition were never heard from again. Mm. So whether they ended up living their life out in some sort of far-flung place where they were never heard from, most likely they think that they were killed. So it is sort of this ironic twist at the end of the piece that it was such an arduous journey and right at the point that they actually were basically going to make it, three of the members departed. Powell was credited with exploring, quote, uncharted canyons, uh, as his namesake museum puts it. Uh, Lake Powell, which is man-made, is named after him. But he didn't actually discover anything. I mean, native people had been there for some time, and even white settlers had already been through the region, apparently. I want to say that the regional premiere of Men on Boats has a scene that is different from the previous iterations of the production. Just briefly, what happened? Well, so there was in the original published version of the piece and in the original piece, there's a scene with um, two members of the Ute tribe. And of course, Powell's expedition, they were really on Ute lands. And um, when we were contemplating doing it, we have a board member who is um, Native American. And she read it and she just said, you know, here you are doing this piece that is about representation, and it's about whose stories um, we tell. 
And I think that you should think very seriously about doing a scene that has Ute members that was not written by Utes and that will likely be played by actors who are who are not Ute people. Mm. And so I took it up with Jacqueline. I said, we love this piece. Again, but, this is the playwright. Yes. And... Um, but but we just don't feel that we can do that scene in good conscience. Did you swap the characters out then with others? So she wrote us a new scene. She wrote us a new scene that instead of the Ute members, uh, Powell's expedition uh, encounters some farmers, some white settlers, as you said. The, the region was settled by these sort of off-the-grid white settlers as well. So we'll be the first production to have our own scene. Okay. <laughs> and the production is of men... On Boats, which is going to be running through mid-October from the Canamats at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder. The script uses some modern-day language as well as 19th century language. I wonder if you might share an example of how these these show up? Well, uh, as far as the modern language, two of my favorite instances of it are uh, Hall is the map maker and Hawkins the cook, and they're two of the more colorful characters. And they call their boat, um, which is the Maid of the Canyon, they call it the party boat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, also uh, when the expedition um, and the play, when they finally get to the Grand Canyon, they use Powell's language to describe it. And they say, what a chamber for a resting place is this, hewn from solid rock, heavens for a ceiling, which is this lovely, when I actually first read it, I thought, oh, that sounds Shakespearean or King James Bible-esque, which, yeah. of course, would have been, you know, what Powell's language would have been inspired by at the time. And so she does do this really fun juxtaposition of both the the Powell, you know, more arcane language and contemporary language. Heavens for a ceiling. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great line from the journal. Mm. Most of the play takes place on the river, the Colorado River. How do you achieve that possibly on stage with any sense of realism? Well, you know, I like to joke that um, our production of Men on Boats has no men and no boats. Okay, um, no men or so boats. So when we really uh, started to investigate kind of what happens to a body um, when it is on uh, the river in these rapids, we became more interested in um, what physically happens to the body rather than a representation of the physical vessel. So all of our river sequences are are essentially dance. They're essentially choreographed in this very physical way. Uh, we also, it became very important to us to represent how they really would have gone down the canyon because we live here in Colorado where yeah. there are lots of people who do We've this. Done it. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so we represent a lot of the, uh, the oaring that they would have done down the canyon. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Amanda Berg-Wilson is the artistic director of the Catamounts. The play Men on Boats, which, as you heard, has neither men nor boats, runs through October 13th at the Dairy Center in Boulder. And in case you've ever wondered, Catamounts is another word for a wildcat. A hundred years ago this month, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School shut down. The Pennsylvania boarding school was part of the U.S. push to assimilate Native Americans, an effort that remains controversial to this day. Carlisle's most famous student was arguably Jim Thorpe, who's been called the greatest American Olympian of all time. Thorpe was a member of the Sac and Fox Nation, and he won gold medals in the decathlon and pentathlon in 1912. Thorpe went on to play pro football, helping form the NFL. 
He also had pro basketball and baseball careers. Earlier this year, the Mint in Denver pressed a new dollar coin to honor Thorpe. To learn more about him, I spoke with David Bledsoe of the Denver-based American Indian College Fund. David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. For nearly a decade, the dollar coin has featured various American Indians or Indian nations. Uh, What does this new coin with Jim Thorpe look like, first off? Uh, Of course, has his uh, face, his portrait, and shows him hurtling, uh, and also features his uh, sack and fox name, which is Watho Hook, which means bright star. So that's on the side that's generally considered tails. The head side maintains an image of Sacagawea, I think, carrying her infant son. Yes. Okay. So as I mentioned, uh, he was a member of the Sac and Fox Nation, spent his early years thus in the Oklahoma Territory where the U.S. had relegated the tribe. Uh, Then he went to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, a boarding school in Pennsylvania. This was after his mother had died. Soon after, his father dies, making him an orphan as a teen. But I understand it's really at Carlisle that his athletic talents were discovered. Tell me about that. Yeah, he was there for a few years. And it just um, the story goes that basically in 1907, he was walking by um, some track and field athletes that were doing high jumps. And just in his street clothes, easily topped the uh, <laughs> five foot nine bar that uh, all the athletes were unsuccessfully trying at. Wow. And the famous uh, football coach, uh, Glenn Scooby, Pop Warner. Uh, oh, yes. For whom Pop Warner football is named. Right, right. He uh, immediately <laughs> basically brought him into uh, track and field athletics. And then a couple of years after that, he was a little hesitant to bring him into football, but when he saw uh, Jim Thorpe's prowess, he's put him onto the football team for Carlisle Indians. Now, I think Thorpe was about 5'8", so not giant in stature. Right, right. Okay. And with this idea that he seems to have a knack for things he doesn't necessarily have practice in, before the 1912 Olympic trials, he'd never thrown a javelin or pole vaulted. Is, is that right? Right. If you look at the quotes and people that talk about that either competed against him or saw him uh, competing both in track and field and football and things like that. There's this remark that you hear over and over again about his just natural athleticism. So, uh, of course, he was involved in track and field, but didn't start training until the spring before the summer games oh in 1912. <laughs> and there were several of the of the um, uh, the events that he participated in, both in the pentathlon and decathlon, that he had never done before. So um, even though he was successful in eight of the 15 events in those two sports and and won the gold medal, um, some of them were brand new to him. Wow. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're talking about Jim Thorpe, who has been called the greatest American Olympian of all time. We're getting a sense for Thorpe's life uh, with David Bledsoe, who's from the Denver-based American Indian College Fund. I have heard his uh, Olympic performance described as epic. Yes. <laughs> wow. Uh, and I suppose that is in part because so many of these activities were, were new to him. Uh, on the second day of competition, Thorpe couldn't find his shoes. And so he competed in a mismatched pair. Yeah, supposedly some that he had found in the trash. <laughs> okay. Just because, uh, I guess he was so popular that maybe someone had wanted a trophy or souvenir and, and grabbed his shoes. But he uh, there are some of those strange things along his journey, both in the Olympics and his professional sports career, where, you know, he 
played in shoes that were mismatched. He <laughs> when the odds are against him, he still succeeds. Right. The then king of Sweden, where the games were taking place, gave Thorpe his gold medals during the 1912 awards ceremony. What did the king say to him as he placed the medals around Thorpe's neck? He said, "You, sir, are the world's greatest athlete," and that's actually on his um, his uh, tombstone. Um, where he's laid to rest. And also he was presented a medal by um, the last czar, Nicholas II, uh, oh for the other sport that he uh, gold medaled in. Um, and it's it's interesting to think about some of these tremendous remarks, but he actually played against uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, on the Army football team. Okay, And then 50 years later, Dwight Eisenhower was, was remarking on what a tremendous – you know, natural athlete he was in a speech. So you see that over and over again. When he returned from the games uh, in 1912, he played in an, uh, an amateur athletic competition in New York. And Martin Sheridan, who was a five-time gold medal winner, had almost the same comments. He said, you were the finest athlete I've ever seen. So you see it over and over again, people kind of remarking on just how natural his ability was. And not in just one sport, as we said, right. in football, in basketball, in baseball, in track. I want to note that the International Olympic Committee, though, stripped him for a, a good period of time of his medals. Yes. Uh, after um, the Games, uh, there was some contest brought up about his amateurism. At that time uh, in the Olympics, no uh, professional athletes were allowed to play. And they had said that there were two very small instances where he might have been paid, you know, nothing like a contract like we would see today, but okay. a small amount of money to participate in sporting competitions. However, if you look at the public comments of the time, that was later seen really as a, a you know, a racial attack, uh, uh, evident of, of racism towards him as a Native American. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that the medals were reinstated. Uh, 30 years after his death in 1983. Right. He did not leave to see the reinstatement. He though. did not. No. Huh. I want to note that he was a ballroom dancer, too. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> do does one guy have to have all the talent? Could, could you send a little my way? Uh, Thorpe is often referred to as a modern athlete. What, what do you think that means? Uh, I think it has to do with just the number of different areas in which he excelled. Um, not only was he an Olympian, he was playing professional baseball and football at the same time. Uh, you look, go back to Bo, you know, Bo knows from the Nike campaign. Sure. Athletes playing multiple sports. That was considered, uh, you know, also the, the course of the dawn of kind of professional athleticism. Uh, when he was playing with the Carlisle Indians, that was the very beginning of the NCAA. Uh, he was a founding member and the very first president of the APFA, the American um, Professional Football Association, which was the first name of the NFL. That's it. what it was called for the first two years. So that was kind of the move into professionalism from, you know, kind of regional and, and exhibit leagues that would travel and just kind of showcase their ability. Do you think Thorpe was aware of the racism he encountered and what did he make of it? Uh, a lot of his thoughts weren't known as you talked about him being in a, uh, you know, kind of a very vulnerable place when he first came to the Carlisle Indian School, you know, being orphaned, his brother had also died within that period of time. And oh sports were kind of a refuge for him. You know, he found this way to connect with people, to show his excellence. And so, you know, that was what was most important to him about 
you know, performing and being a part of all of these different endeavors. How did you get interested in him, David Bledsoe? Uh, Just through my work with the American Indian College Fund, um, there's so many interesting aspects of early Native American experience here uh, as our country moved west. Let me say, he was the first American Indian to medal at the Olympics. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that is correct. And, you know, he's obviously an exceptional athlete, but also kind of a barrier breaker in himself, you know, as far as winning the Olympic medals, uh, being a part of professional sports, you know, being the first president of the, the NFL or the APFA, uh, and just kind of a, a role model for a lot of American Indians who at that time did not have, you know, when he participated in the Olympics, they did not have the right to vote. Um, and there was, you know, pretty rampant racism. If you look at his performances, even at the college and professional level, a lot of it was uh, framed as whites versus Indians or Redskins versus, um, you know, uh, uh, citizens of our country. So there was a lot of that that continued through his career. He didn't speak out about it, but just the fact that he participated and really found excellence uh, in all of those sports, that's really what people look to when they see um, who Jim Thorpe was. My goodness, a lot going on on that dollar yeah. coin, a lot of story behind it. David, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. David Bledsoe is with the Denver-based American Indian College Fund. We spoke earlier this year about Olympian Jim Thorpe, who appears on a new dollar coin from the U.S. Mint in Denver. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow Colorado Matters on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek. Michael Hughes is our audio engineer, along with Matt Hers and Shane Rumsey. This is Colorado Public Radio News.